Um, how often have you ever looked at childhood pictures and compared yourself to your parents? You ever done that? Okay. Have you ever looked at your own children and wondered what features are more like uh, you or the other parent? Sometimes in fun, but sometimes going, eh, do they? <laughs> maybe a little more like me, maybe a 60 40, 70 30. Huh? Um, sometimes when we see characteristics and mannerisms in ourselves or our children, maybe if you don't have children, nieces, or nephews, it might even go back further than just their parents. We might look at children and see grandparents' behaviors, great-grandparents, or even aunts and uncles. Has anyone ever seen that? Like, that's something, even as a parent, you'll look at your kid and go, that's just the way my, my dad did something, or that's just the way my mom did something. The genetic component of our family of origin, parents, relatives, have a profound impact on what we look like and what we turn out to be. And it's not simply the genetic, but the examples the stories, the interactions that our relatives, our family of origin has that shapes and molds us, not just when we're little, but even the entirety of our lives. Sometimes we'll even look at ourselves as adults and think, wait a minute, you look in the mirror and say, I'm starting to look like my dad looks, or I'm starting to look like my mom looks, or I'm talking just like my mom and my dad when talking to our kids, right? Which you may think is good or bad, I'm not sure. <laughs> Our family of origin doesn't just impact our appearances, but it plays a huge part in shaping our personalities and our behaviors. So when we think of traits or habits or mannerisms we picked up from our parents, and how we turn and start expressing those, and I think of expressions my dad, uh, he's passed away now for about three years ago, but my dad was a very strong character. He's from Chicago. And, uh, I shared this with Nicholas some, but my dad had this way that people from Chicago talk to other people. I don't know if you, what they call Yankee talk or something, but it was very demonstrative, very loud. It could be very uh, theatrical at times. And uh, my sister and I would joke about what habits we picked up or even what ways we reacted to that, not picking up some of those traits or habits that could get you in trouble. Um, you don't necessarily talk to people in Arkansas the way you talk to people in Chicago. I learned that early on. The way people in Chicago express themselves to one another or other drivers. I learned that early on when we moved to Arkansas as my dad's fist was shaking out the window at people in trucks and going and traveling on back roads after he'd moved down here as I was sliding down in the back seat of the vehicle of the car so no one could see me. Um, but when we think of traditions or mannerisms that go back one, two, or three generations, and how many of us can recall lessons or special moments or times you spent with your parents or grandparents that profoundly shape you to this day, that perhaps even share as an inspiration to you? I think of my mom's mother, my grandmother, her name was Hazel, and I still remember um, being a little kid when we'd go visit her in Alabama, uh, her giving me the Living Bible, uh, talking about Bible stories and prayers, and my, that was the only religious connection really in my family. 
my parents, my mom was kind of in an untraditional, non-traditional religious spiritual views, and my father was agnostic. So there was no like generational spirituality, but my grandmother's talks that we would have, even at a young age, still sit with me today. Maybe you can think of comforting words that you received, maybe prayers from your family or stories that you were told, or just being aware that those persons, those parents, those aunts, those uncles, those relatives, people in your family of origin that were praying for you or simply having good thoughts for you or rooting for you. Can anyone think of that? And those people aren't necessarily conveyors of a lesson, though they could be and are, but those relatives were or are an ongoing source of encouragement and support. And if we're fortunate, we still have some of those relatives with us. Um, Some of us don't, um, but their stories and their memories still sit within us. And then we ask, how much honor do we give our loved ones? Our parents and our grandparents, and this isn't a lecture or to make anyone feel guilty that they haven't called somebody or they haven't sent a card or an email. This is not, I'm not shaming anybody. I'm just wanting people to reflect on this, okay? Um, But if you think of how much we honor those persons, not even just in actions, but where we carry them in our heart and we carry them consciously with us where we go. We might think a little or a lot, or even persons that are like family to us due to circumstances. I've worked with persons in the field of work I'm in who don't have birth parents as their parents. They, uh, due to circumstances when they were little, they were placed in situations where families had to adopt them or take them to foster. They were foster parents. But those persons served as parental figures or sources of inspiration and family and connection, even though they weren't necessarily what we call traditional, right? So life circumstances can bring about these family figures in our lives that have an impact on us, that shape us at the very core of our being. And think of the person in your family of origin or your tradition that you were raised in, whether it was natural, whether it was through another process of adoption, whether it was through a process of just maybe someone that took you under their wing and was like a parent to you. Think of how you would feel if maybe someone spoke ill of them or was, spoke something insulting of that person. It might bother you or stick with you, right? Or if someone spoke ill of another family member, a child or a sibling. And family of origin has a huge impact on us, even as we go through our entire life. And I've noticed, and maybe you have, that the older you get, you start recalling those stories that you wanted to forget when you were younger, almost ad nauseum to the people around you. So I'll start sharing with family members, oh, you know, I just, I just started thinking, I hadn't thought about this in years, but when I was young, and you can see the eyes, glaze. oh, here we go, Paul's, Paul's starting to talk about that, you know. Within a Christian context, though, we do have a spiritual family of origin. And I'm talking about um, today, uh, and I mentioned last week that the three streams that the Anglican tradition has where we pull from evangelical, spirit-filled, and the Catholic, and all those three streams try to work together. And in the Catholic stream, there's a big emphasis on the communion of saints, 
Um, and the recognition and maybe the more intentional thoughtfulness of this extended family that we call the communion of saints. That's why we see in our prayer books and our liturgical traditions, we see days of Mary or Andrew or Matthew, St. Francis Day, some saints that came later. And the emphasis on that is not just that we remember things that they said and imparted knowledge to us, but the understanding that we don't sit in isolation as Christians by ourselves in 2019 right here. We're not alone in this journey. That we actually have a family that dates back to the first century and spreads down all through the centuries today. And not just a family in our head and theoretically and our like, oh yeah, okay, okay, so that was a saint and I'm a saint, that means we're, but in a real sense, we have an organic connection, and you hear this when we do the liturgy with angels and archangels and all the company of heaven. Something takes place during the Eucharist where we are, in a spiritual manner, the saints in heaven and the saints on earth, the family is somehow connected together in a special way. In different traditions, from Anglican to Roman to Orthodox, some Lutheran, and maybe others I'm not aware of, place different levels of emphasis on looking at this family that we're a part of. And we think of how important it is to set aside a birthday uh, for someone's mother, right? Or if we think of different special days to show our uh, appreciation to, for a family member. A spouse might pick Valentine's Day for their partner, right? Or their husband or wife or boyfriend or girlfriend or a birthday celebration for their child or somebody. And you set aside that special day because why we appreciate them every day, there's that one day we set aside to maybe remember them in a unique, special way that might not be uh, thought of through the busyness of the year. And this spiritual family of origin we have is important to our spiritual development and growth, whether we like it or not. The communion of the saints, which we recite in our creed, means we have this extended family, and it doesn't simply mean the people sitting like in the chair or pew next to you right now. It's beyond that. It transcends this physical space we're in. The book of Hebrews says we're surrounded by a cloud of witnesses. The people are spectators, right? The people are witnesses or watching us. And the book of Revelation talks about the saints around the thrones of God or the throne of God who are offering prayers. We're not alone right here where we're at. We're not in isolation. We have family members on this side of eternity and on the other side of eternity that think good of us, wish well for us, and pray on our behalf. And their prayers are like incense up before God. And I think of that just like my grandmother, and I would like to think that when my grandmother prayed for me when I was a small child, she can pray for me just right now. And I take comfort from that. So that means we're interrelated. How are we interrelated? We're inter interrelated through our participation in the life of Christ, which all believers are in. So on this particular day, I'm just wanting to ask you to consider a special person that's in our family. 
that our participate, participation in the life of Christ means Christ is our elder brother. His father is now our father, and his mother is now our mother because we participate in the life of Christ. So this holy day, celebrated by some liturgical traditions, remembers our mother's, or the, our Lord's mother's birth, and how she's described when she says highly favored, which means full of grace. And when we think about how we would talk about our own mother and the honor we would give her on a, on a birthday of hers, and we think of how Christ would have honored his mother and how in Christ and in his life, God's our father, the saints are siblings, he's our elder brother, and his mother's our mother. And this angel hailed the mother and said she was highly favored and full of grace. And the thought to contemplate is the mother of our Lord, whom we can call our mother as we participate in Christ, is that she was designed before the world by God to be his mother. So imagine that God purposed and designed his own mother. And what kind of mother would this be if the creator of the universe, before eternity and eternity pass, when we think of Ephesians, if God says, I'm going to fashion the person who's going to give birth to me, and that person is going to raise me, that person is going to be the strongest character in my life for those formative years. Because we know what an impact our family of origin can have, good and bad. So what does the creator of the universe do when he wants to design the person who he will go into and he will submit to according to the law and yield to during his infant years and his formative years. If you could design your own parent, what would that be like? I mean, in a mature way, right? <laughs> you know, Captain Crunch every morning. I didn't get sweetened cereal growing up. I had Cheerios and grape nuts. <laughs> and so, how many had that, and then when they got to college, they went crazy with sweetened cereal? <laughs> Who did? Nicole, you did? Fruity Pebbles, Captain Crunch, Lucky Charms, because all I had was Cheerios and grape nuts when I was, oh, man, no Pop-Tarts. Um, so if you could design your own parents, design your own mom, what would that look like? But the creator of the universe, God himself, who is perfect, created his own mother. And that is mind-blowing in and of itself to think that the creator of the universe is creating his mom, and I don't mean that, he, that she is given to give birth to the Trinity. This is not that type of thing. I'm not saying that. I'm saying the Trinity designed who the second person of the Godhead would be incarnated in. That's what I'm saying, just so there's no misunderstanding there. So full of grace is the idea when we say this, and not everyone shares this. Not all three streams share this, share this emphasis. This is more on the Catholic stream, the liturgical stream. But the idea is that full of grace means, if you, and the analogy I've read before is that if, if we fall into a pit and someone pulls us out and rescues us, they've rescued us, right? The idea of the Immaculate Conception is 
Someone is walking and they're about to fall into a pit and someone stops them before they fall in. And so the idea is that with God designing his mother to ensure that sin wouldn't be passed on, that the person who would be raising God himself in the flesh would have the perfect temperament and disposition and qualities to ensure that he would grow in wisdom and stature. The environment that the second person of the Godhead would want to grow into in his humanity, that he would be able to fulfill the mission that he had to redeem us. So that her conception, it was kept from falling into the pit in light of, and you could think of the Old Testament saints, though Christ hadn't died yet, the benefits of forgiveness was applied to them. This was at the conceptual moment, this idea. And some Protestant traditions accepted this. Luther did, Cranmer, but others didn't. Others thought, no, we're not going to go that far. But the idea of this day is to remember the mother of our Lord, designed by God himself, is our mother through our participation in the life of Christ, and that our family is bigger, and our spiritual family of origin has a larger impact on us than we think So what's clear is the woman God designed to be his mother played a crucial role in the life of our Lord. And to some degree, she plays a crucial life in Christ's brothers and sisters, which is us by redemption. If we share in his life, death, and resurrection, and his father is our father, his brothers are our brothers, his mother is our mother. So what are some of the characteristics of this? You'll notice that there's this contrast when we read in Genesis that there's a sense of enmity that the enemy has, uh, this dislike he has for the woman that would one day come and bring about salvation. And I've talked about this before, that the church traditions believes uh, that, or some church tradition says that what angered Satan so much is that God was going to become human in flesh. And this enraged non-material beings who, were so, who thought we're, we're so much better. Why would we serve people made of dirt? And why would our creator, who's infinite, subject himself to being made of dirt and born of an earthly creature? And the earthly creature, Mary, who gave her uh, body to form the body of our Lord, is despised because that's the means by which humanity was redeemed, God in the flesh. The church fathers call Mary the new Eve, Tertullian, others call her the new Eve, that, and they talk about the untire of knots, that when Eve was deceived, Mary was not deceived. And we find that from Mary, the eternal and human met. Mary was the very person that gave the second person of the Trinity her human nature, which would not have been corrupted and flesh, thereby making redemption possible. Because our salvation had to be accomplished by one who was God and human. We find this in the God-man. Christ, who was human by the virtue of the Virgin Mary. So Mary had a part in God's plan of redemption. Our family not by assisting or making atonement, and not by giving merits, because salvation is through the merits of Christ, but Mary in submitting to God's plan and yielding herself to the place 
where God called her to be, created and gave herself so she could make an environment where our Lord grew in wisdom and stature and was able to fulfill the law. This is our mother. Our mother is also called the Ark of the Covenant. And if we think of that, what was in the Ark of the Covenant? Right? Which is what? The Word. What else was in the Ark of the Covenant? Which is the priesthood and the manna from heaven, right? So we have the bread of heaven, the Word, and what represented the priesthood. And so what was in Mary? The bread from heaven, our high priest, and the living Word. And when you look at Revelation, when it talks about the ark coming out of heaven, there are no chapters and verses. It moves into chapter 12, and we see the woman coming out of heaven, clothed with the sun, and like that. So when we think of this as our family. So the New Testament ark of the covenant, which was made of flesh and bones, contains the living word that God sent to earth, the bread of heaven. It says in Hebrews 9, 4, she brought forth a male child, one who is to rule all nations with the rod of iron. The church fathers speak of this, Ambrose. And what surrounded the Ark of the Covenant? So who's held birthdays for their parents? What do you do? What's that like? I'm not trying to put anyone on the spot. Just think about it if you don't want to say you think you want to put a, a nice celebration together or something like that? If you look at the Ark of the Covenant, it says the glory of the Lord surrounded the Ark. But then when you look at Luke, it says the Holy Spirit overshadowed Mary. In 2 Samuel, David states, how can the Ark of the Lord come to me? And in Luke 143, Elizabeth says, why is this granted me that the mother of my Lord should come to me? How did the Old Testament saints respond in the Old Testament to the Ark of the Covenant? David danced before the Ark in 2 Samuel, marrying the life of the church. When we look at Revelation, we see themes of celebration. When we think of our spiritual family of origin, our elder brother Christ, our heavenly father, and our mother, we also think of one who thinks well for us and speaks on our behalf. There's, this is alluded to in 1 Kings, 2 Kings, where um, the fourth son of David who attempted to become king instead of Solomon and petitioned Bathsheba the queen to petition on his behalf. Solomon says to Bathsheba the queen, he goes and she sat at his right hand. And what we see from Mary is that she's the faithful model for the church she says yes to Christ's will and request. She keeps her vows and she stays centered on Christ. You might ask, well, how is this relevant? I would ask you, how is it not relevant? If our natural and earthly family of origin is so important and makes such a huge impact on us, even in ways we don't realize all through our adulthood, from childhood to adulthood, how can our spiritual family is not just Christ, because we're, we're not saved alone. I mean, salvation is individual, right? I mean, it's personal, 
but it's not individual and separated from the family of God. So when we become Christians and we enter the family of God, we are entering into and we're given a massive heavenly family. How can our spiritual family of origin not be important to who we are and who our Lord is? Our Lord's mother, our mother, is the means by which God entered into time and the human experience created that perfect environment for our Lord to grow in wisdom and stature. What kind of person creates this climate for our Lord? And what can she teach us and how does she speak on our behalf? How can our spiritual mother, the mother of our Lord, who is our Lord is our elder brother and makes his father our father, provide us with a perfect picture of perfect obedience and humility who responds to the call of God without reservation. And when we think of the saints around us right now that we see among us and that who we don't see, and when we think of the prayers and revelation of the saints that go before God, the Bible says the prayers of a righteous man availeth much. A righteous person's prayers availeth much. Who is more righteous than people who are in heaven? Because they don't have sin. They don't have a fallen nature. They're not falling asleep when they pray. They're not distracted, right? They don't have all that. So when their prayers are offered, it's in the very presence of God without any distractions. When we think of who could support and encourage us, on this day, could we think of our Lord's mother in any less capacity? In closing, Please consider the cloud of witnesses and the saints praying in heaven as not only nice stories to recall on holidays. As we move towards Christmas through the Advent season, where when we read these narratives and stories, we're going to see real people because God works through means. God doesn't just work in our heads. Christianity is not simply a mental ascent to dogma and an intellectualizing of beliefs. God breaks through into means. So he uses bread and wine to communicate the body and blood, right? He uses the waters of baptism for entrance into the spiritual community of the church. He uses prayers. He uses uh, the different means of grace where he enters into the tangible reality where we live. And the saints who are current and in, on the other side of eternity are realities. And they're our family. They are the living saints who sit before the throne of God, pray on our behalf, just like the saints on earth who are our family members now. Our being in the life of Christ provides us with a family that supersedes time and physical location, and thank God for that. Our Lord places us in a family, gives us a heavenly father, and a multitude of siblings and a mother who pray for us, encourage us, and call us to persevere through the most difficult times we face.